You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with an array of thinkers, from faith leaders to academics to artists, to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to welcome to our show Cantor Liana Mendelssohn. Cantor Liana was ordained as a cantor at Hebrew Union College in May, and she became the cantor educator of Temple Beth Shalom here in Santa Fe in July. Cantor Liana, welcome. Thank you for having me. Welcome to our show and welcome to Santa Fe. How are you finding? How are you finding Santa Fe? Um, so I lived in Brooklyn for the last four years, and being in Santa Fe has helped me really reconnect to nature in a way that I'm finding really meaningful. Um, there's a psalm, Psalm 121, where it says, um, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? And I never understood that psalm until I moved here, and I could lift up my eyes and see the mountains. Um, so it's really beautiful. It's definitely a big adjustment from the big city life. Yes, it's, it's not lifting up your eyes to the skyscrapers, is it? Yes. Yes. And so, so let's ask, um, we haven't had a canter on the show yet. So what is a canter? And for you, what's the difference between a canter and a rabbi? So as a cantor, I am an ordained Jewish clergy person. I went to graduate school for five years, and at the end, um, the, the provost of Hebrew Union College, who is a rabbi, laid her hands on my head and bestowed upon me the priestly blessing and all the authority of ordination. Um, but what makes me different from a rabbi is that the, the cantor is specifically trained in music. So I have been singing since I was a little girl, and um, I studied music in college. And when I went to cantorial school, we studied Hebrew text, history, pastoral care, education, many of the same things that rabbis do. Um, but we also studied traditional Jewish music and contemporary Jewish music. And um, I'm a trained singer and a still learning guitar player. And, and a, a gorgeous voice. What, what, what is the role of a cantor in the service? So the role of the cantor is to, I really see my role as tradition bearer. I think that um, I've, I've been trained in many different styles of music while I was in school, um, ranging from the ancient to the very new, but all of it is about creating traditions and creating memory. I think music is a way through which we access memory. We, we create, we remember the things that we have heard sung and we, we create new memories and we pass down memory through song. And so I see, I see my role as this bearer of tradition, as I said, and, and a creator of, of memory. And so the, the cantor um, in many places has a lot of responsibility for the worship and liturgy. Um, and, and is the prayer leader uh, together with the rabbi. You, it's fascinating when you say you're the tradition bearer because ours is such a long tradition. It's a very heavy thing to carry, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, 
And I, I think, you know, there, there are pieces of the tradition that I grew up with and pieces that I didn't. And taking them all on um, is, it, it's very much an honor and a privilege. And sometimes it feels like a lot. Um, so, you know, there's a traditional cantorial music like chazanut, um, which would be, you know, something uh, with a lot of like embellishment, traditional chanting. Um, and that was something that I never heard when I was growing up and I had to learn in school. Um, but I have to find ways for that to be as authentic to me as, you know, the song leading kind of music that I grew up hearing. Um, and I think the, the responsibility of the modern cantor is to find ways to synthesize all of these things into um, sort of a cohesive tradition, something that we can transmit and make accessible to people and that carries so many different elements of Jewish history because there's so many different things, right? There's this traditional cantorial music. There's, um, you know, 19th century German reform music that's like hymns and chorales. And there's 20th century music that sounds like an art song. And then there's, you know, camp stuff with the guitar and syncopated rhythms. And all of that is ours. And so it's my responsibility to make all of that mine and then to to give all of that to my congregation. And you you said a phrase, you said, you know, partly responsible for creating tradition. How how can how do you authentically create tradition? Because very often when I talk to religious people, they say, well, the tradition, we, we maintain that which is in the past. And we don't invent, we don't create, because to do so would be hubris, to do so would be um, elevating ourselves above that which has come in the past. That's clearly not where you're coming from. So what does it mean for you to create tradition as well as to bear tradition? I think music is always a creative act. I think prayer is always a creative act. And you know, I might have learned how to sing something from someone, but then when I sing it, it's going to be different. Right. Um, And so I think that in terms of creating tradition, I think we have to honor the past, but I don't think we're stuck. I don't think we're stuck at fully adhering to it because I think that um, every new person adds something. So whatever I do is going to be different from whatever anyone else would do. And so there's going to be traditions at Temple Beth Shalom that are going to arise because I'm there and I'm a different person than has been there. And um, we have to listen and learn, but we still need to be creative and to to understand that no matter how much we think we're sticking to tra- tra- tradition, every person puts their own stamp on it. You, you remind me of uh, Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan's idea of um, the past has a vote, not a veto. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I find that fascinating. You, you mentioned prayer is a creative act. How, how do you describe prayer more fully? Individual prayer, communal prayer. Mm-hmm. What is prayer to you? So I, I brought a poem, which is my very favorite poem, um, written by one of the national poets of Israel, Yehuda Amichai. I'm going to read it in English translation. I say with perfect faith that prayers preceded God, prayers created God, God created people, and people create prayers that create God who creates people. 
And so, you know, I, I said so already. We share that again. Okay. That was so much. That was wonderful. <laughs> I say with perfect faith that prayers preceded God. Prayers created God. God created people. And people create prayers that create God who creates people. So it's this sort of cyclical ongoing act of creation that that happens all the time. I think, like I said already, prayer is a creative act. I think it is. I think um, prayer is something that helps us imagine who we are and what we want the world to be. And it helps us sort of create that. I think it was a study text recently um, that said something to the effect of prayer does not change the external world, but it changes me who changes the external world. It was uh, Rabbi Lionel Blue yeah. who, who wrote that. Right, right. So in this extraordinary poem that you brought, when it says that prayers preceded God and prayers created God, does that mean, I mean that's a huge statement. Mm -hmm. Does that mean, well, well, what does that mean to create God? Does that mean to create awareness of God in our lives? Does that mean to literally create God? Mm -hmm. How do you understand that poem? I think of God in, in the Bible and in, and in our liturgy, we see God as someone who speaks things into being. Right. Um, you know, the the story of creation, God said, let there be light. And then there was light. And so I think it's about sort of the power, the creative power of words and language. And so it is absolutely a bold statement. This is a, a particular theology. Um, but I think for me, um, what I see as divine is is the way that we can connect with each other and the way that we can connect with that which is bigger than ourselves. And I think we can speak that into being. Um, and so so that's that's how I see this idea of prayers preceding God, right? We, we call God into our lives by speaking God into our lives, um, by speaking in these connections and presence. I'm, I'm fascinated by this. You've opened a, a huge door here. Um, when God creates at the beginning, um, when God speaks, now I'm wondering, did God sing? Mm -hmm. um, was the universe, was the world sung into being? I've always read it as read into being. And now as you're bringing this as a cantor, makes me wonder, what's the melody to the words? Because for me, as a rabbi, I'm, I'm often very text. I, I, you know, it's there on the page. It doesn't have a sound. But for you, it's, it's sounded. Does that resonate in any way? Am I, uh, am I going off on my own strange tangent? I mean, we have, you know, the traditional chanting of the text. You know, when you're saying that, I can hear playing in my head what it sounds like to chant the first few verses of the Torah. Mm -hmm. um, but... I think that speech and song are not so distant from each other. Right. Um, I think, you know, it's all about the, the communication. And I think song is just adding another level to the, another level of depth to how we're trying to communicate. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's one thing 
for for me to say in the High Holy Day liturgy, this is the day of judgment. This is the day of awe. And it's another thing for me to like sing a very dramatic piece and really like instill the the feeling of awe into the congregation, hopefully. Um, I think I think singing is speech with more power. So maybe because it did need to be powerful, maybe it was sung. We're going to take a pause. Uh, what a wonderful place for us to pause. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil, my guest this evening, Cantor Liana Mendelssohn, the Cantor Educator of Temple Beth Shalom, and we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom here in Santa Fe and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. My guest this evening, my uh, fellow co-clergy member, Cantor Liana Mendelssohn, who is now the Cantor Educator at Temple Beth Shalom here in Santa Fe. And you've been sharing this lovely idea of, of the power of song adding to words before the break uh, and this extraordinary poem that you, that you shared I, I want to hold that, but also ask about the education, because you're not just the cantor, you're the cantor educator at Temple Beth Shalom. So for you, how does your role as clergy and educator, how does that intersect for you? So when I think of, you know, we've been talking about prayer as as speech. I think also a, an important thing is dialogue. So I brought another text. Um, so... This is from the Talmud, Brachot 26b, and it is a, a group of rabbis discussing what prayer is. And they, they decide that the three biblical patriarchs, um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, established the three daily prayers that Jews traditionally do. And one of them is um, that Isaac established the afternoon prayer because he went out to have a conversation in the field. Um, and they use this word conversation to mean prayer. And so I think for, for me, it's about taking it from that step of like speech as a creative act one step further into entering into dialogue. And I think that's what I do when I teach. And I think that's the role of education in a religious context. It's giving people the tools to enter into dialogue with their traditions, texts, and faith and community. Um, and so I really see study as an act of prayer because it's entering into that dialogue. And so for me as a clergy person, um, a lot of how I access um, my own spirituality is through study, um, through studying our liturgy, our history, and our texts, which helps me feel connected into the big that is divine, 
um, and to connect with other people who may have studied these same things as me or, you know, I love studying history and feeling, um, you know, people of the past come alive. And I think all of these things are prayer because they are part of that bigger dialogue. It's a fascinating perspective on education because we see so often in the world religious education being here is the text, learn it. But that's Mm -hmm. not a Jewish perspective at all, is it? It's very much a, you know, and what does this say to you, Um, that dialogue? But it's fascinating for you to say that study is an act of prayer because does that mean that prayer is also an act of study? Absolutely. So in in what way? So as you're leading a service, for example, in what way is prayer an act of study as well? Um, I think it's a a self-study. I think on one level, I think there's when we when we pray, if we're going to pray authentically and meaningfully, we need to study ourselves and figure out what we need in that moment. But I think also, um, you know, Jewish tradition has such a rich liturgy. And if we don't study it and understand it, then we can't connect to it. Um, And I think part of how we study it and connect to it is just by doing it. Um, so I think there's there's this, you know, sort of deep relationship where you're kind of doing both at the same time, right? We The more you repeat it, the deeper it becomes to you and the more you want to repeat it. Um, and I, I think of our, you know, our prayer books and how they have so much marginalia, right? They've got all these extra readings. You know, you could, if you got bored during services, which – you never would because of my singing. Of but if you if you did get bored during services, maybe you, during my service, <laughs> <laughs> you can flip through the prayer book, and there's so many additional ways to engage. And I think, um, you know, that's that's such a very, very Jewish concept, going all the way back to the idea of like the Beit Midrash, where you would have a partner and you would work together and and discuss a text. It's always been about that idea of discussion and dialogue. So this this chavruta, this pairing. Yeah. When you're, when you're dialoguing with someone, when you're teaching them, um, and they come up with something that's so outrageous and obviously not what the text originally intended, what, what does that mean for you as an educator? Because when we enter into dialogue, you know, a dialogue necessitates that people are different. Otherwise, it's a, it's a dull dialogue. But then what do you do when something is so off the wall, so out there? What, what does that mean for you as an educator? I mean... Or is there such a thing? Yeah, I mean, there's such a thing as off the wall. I'm hoping this is like off the wall in a creative way and not a disrespectful way. But I think, I mean, even in in the Talmud, we can see people disagreeing and, and they wrote down all the disagreements, right? That's kind of the point of the text. I think, you know, one of the um, sort of agendas of Jewish um, text and study is to realize that there's not one right answer. Um, and that we can hold a lot of different things. And maybe we think, you know, one perspective has more truth in it than another. But if someone believes and feels uh, a certain perspective, you know, we, we have to kind of like come to terms with that, I think, in, in, the, in these contexts. I, I really enjoy that in some sense. What does it mean to have more truth, maybe more the weight of traditional backing and interpretation? But that doesn't mean that we're bound by that because maybe our 
our past interpretations were very patriarchal right. or very authoritarian or and so on. Right. And we can say, yes, but our text was traditionally interpreted right. that way. But we in the 21st century have a very different perspective. And it's really, really important. It's critical that we remember that when we say the tradition, we have to remember whose tradition it is. Right. So, um, you know, I'm a young woman. I was ordained as a cantor this spring. The first woman to be ordained as a cantor by my institution was ordained in 1975. And that's not that long ago. There are thousands of years before then. Mm. Um, I mean, the ordination of cantors is a relatively recent invention. But but the weight that was given to, you know, cis male voices versus, you know, other people and other people who are marginalized in other ways um, when we look at tradition, it's important to say now, who else's tradition can we bring? Um, and there's, you know, all sorts of, you know, women writing new liturgy or writing new interpretations of stories. And they're all newer, but that doesn't make them less, quote, traditional. Mm. I, I, I think this is a, a fascinating thing for us to consider because... I mean, I come from the male perspective, obviously. And so it's easy for me to sort of plug in and go, well, Rashi says this, <laughs> where really it's like my guy Rashi says this. Right. Um, you know, I was picked up by a bar mitzvah student, bat mitzvah student recently um, for saying, you know, when I was giving out some readings and they said, why are so few of these written by women? And I hadn't even noticed. And so that that cis white male normative aspect of Judaism, uh, I, I find fascinating, especially for you to raise as a as a woman coming into clergy leadership, as you say, if the first female cantor was 1975, what does that mean for the voice of female clergy? What is that for you? I, I mean, going back to the idea of the, the cantor taking ownership over all these different types of music and all the different pieces of the tradition, so much of this music was not written for our voices. Ah, go on. And so, um, you know... What a tenor can do is different to what I can do. Um, and so that's that's something that has been an ongoing process um, at the institution I was ordained from where women students and faculty are really working to find ways to to sing this music and feel good about it. But there are times where, you know, you have a male coach and he says something and you're like, my voice just doesn't do that. And... Um, so so it's, again, like, like I said about tradition and everyone having their own stamp on it, right? Like if I sing something, it's going to sound different than someone else. Um, and that's true whether I'm a woman or a man, but it's especially true in this context for this music that was designed for men now being sung by women. I have never – I've been a rabbi 16 years. I've never considered the gendering of music in terms of community music – being written for the male range that I, I think this is extraordinary. There's, this is really important. There's also, so like the keys that I pick will always be perceived as higher than if a man was singing them. So my friends who are tenors can get away with much higher congregational keys, whereas people will be, um, you know, put off and not feel like comfortable singing with me um, above about a C or a D. Um, so there's there's this like perception um, and and a level of comfort. And then, um, you know, and then there's also the question of where do people of other genders, n neither male nor female, people of non-binary mm -hmm. genders fit into the 
um, musical uh, landscape as well. And, you know, that they're, they also need to find ways to like sing this music and have it feel comfortable. Um, so we're, we're all trying to find our voices. I, I, I love this so much. Thank you so much for bringing this. I think, you know, I started teaching a class before you arrived on Tejines, on this mm -hmm. female liturgy. And I tried to teach it, but I was so aware that I was teaching it from my own male perspective. Mm -hmm. And it, it really made me think about, um, uh, about that sort of male normative aspect of, of education and of the Jewish community. And what does it mean for us to challenge it? The reason I, I mentioned the Tejines is because they were hidden. They were published by men. Um, so that the women could have them and they would have all these pamphlets and eventually they just disappeared to the point that so many people don't even know about Tejines. What does that mean for you then with that in mind, this idea of almost that women might pop up from time to time, Beruria in the Talmud might pop up and teach men and her story ends badly or the maiden of Ludmir stands up and she leads her own community until she basically, according to the legend, marries a man and essentially loses all her power because she becomes housewife, even though that wasn't actually true and what happened to her. It's like you're fighting this uphill battle of... of, of um, of having to prove or having to say, no, this is as valid as everything else. How do you go about that? I know you've only got a few minutes, but how do, how do you go about that as, as a young starting female clergy? How do you say this is women's voices, an authentic voice of Judaism and of religion? How do you do that? I mean, I think like for, for what I'm doing as myself, a young woman, I think what's really important is modeling. I think um, that I had really strong female um, teachers in school and that I will be that for other young women. Um, I think it's important to be able to see ourselves in those kinds of things. Um, one of the other things that I think is really important is there was recently a scholar who came up with sort of the Jewish answer to the Bechdel test. And I don't know how to say her name, so I can't say it okay. on the radio, okay. but I believe it's spelled K-R-A-N-J-E-C. And the what she suggested is that we make sure that on every source sheet, whenever we're doing a teaching, um, that there is at least one source by a woman. And that's a lot harder than yeah. you think it is because the Jewish canon has so intensely privileged male voices, right? And we can assume that, uh, you know, all the Bible... And all of the early commentaries, all of that was written by men. Um, and so sometimes I do feel a little silly when I'm assembling a source sheet and I'm like, okay, so I've got the Rashi and the Rambam and someone's sermon from last week. Mm. But it's also important to remember that, you know, Rashi and Rambam and everyone who's reading the Torah at any point in time is reading it through the lens of their time. And so I think it's really, really important to have lenses of our time, too. Right. Um, and so I think there is a little bit of a tendency to think something newer has less authority, but maybe it's more relevant for us. And it was all new once. Yeah. And Rambam was not well received in his exactly. day and age. So 
I, I really appreciate this. You've, you've brought so much to our show today and, and given us so much to think about in terms of prayer and music and gender in religion in general. So I really want to thank you for coming on to our show this evening. Thank you for having me. So thank you to Cantor Leanna Mendelssohn, the Cantor educator of Temple Beth Shalom. It really has been wonderful having you with us. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching. <laughs>